We all experience physical weariness, times without number, but it's the weariness of the soul that troubles us most. All of us have experienced times when we would gladly have put an end to our lives but for the fact that we knew that would be sin. Because the soul can only take so much of guilt and of tragedy and of pain. And one of the most beautiful promises in the book of Hebrews is the promise of soul rest. It's found in chapter 4, and I'd invite you to turn to it. Chapter 4 and verse 3. Here the writer says, We who have believed enter into rest. You know, the first century was an age of unrest. Terrible calamities, earthquakes, volcanoes were shaking the Roman world. But deeper than that was the dissatisfaction with the philosophies, the gods, the mystery religions of the day. The Romans craved rest. The Jews even more so. The Roman yoke rested upon them and in AD 70 was to come the destruction of their capital. The death of a million Jews, the scattering of the rest to the ends of the earth. But then there were the Jewish Christians and they had a double bondage hated by Romans and fellow Jews alike. And there was a confusion of mind. What was God doing? He'd raised up this marvellous paraphernalia of Judaism and now he was permitting it to be torn apart. What did it mean? To the Jewish Christian there was the confusion and unrest of spirit. But the apostle says... We who have believed do enter into rest. There's an old story of a mariner that was condemned by heaven to wander on and on, never to find a haven. A symbolic picture of the soul of man. Remember the dove that Noah released from the ark? Day after day it flew and found no place to rest its foot. That's like the soul of man. Like that evil spirit that wanders through dry places seeking rest and finding none that the New Testament speaks about. Or we could paraphrase the words of Jesus. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests but the soul of man has no place to lay his head. And yet the Jewish scriptures were full of the thought of rest and the promise of rest. Climax after climax of the Old Testament speaks about rest. After the mighty work of creation, God weaves his own rest into the fabric of the universe that men might not say it is a temporary symbol. The omnipotent God drags his heels in fiat creation that he could have done all at once in a split second in order by his own example to set forth a rest into which he would invite all his creatures 
you and me. So there at the climax of creation there was a rest with the Almighty spreading his arms and saying, come unto me, come unto me and I will give you rest. Then in that chain of great names that you find before the story of the flood, those names that span from Adam to Noah, the last name in the list is Noah, which is the Hebrew word for rest. Rest. You know, those names interpreted tell us the whole story of the Bible. If you read down those ten names with their meanings, they read something like this, man, that's what Adam means. Appointed, that's what Seth means. Wretched, falling, Lamech. And then as you go on, you'll read about the blessed God shall descend, dedicated, disciplined, His death shall bring. You know, that's what Methuselah means. That's why he lived the longest of all men. When he died, the flood was to come. And the patient God spun out the life of Methuselah longer than any man. His death shall bring power and rest. That's the meaning there of Genesis 5. Man was appointed, but wretched falling man. But the blessed God, that's Mahalalel, shall descend, that's Jared. Dedicated, disciplined, that's the meaning of Enoch. His death shall bring, that's Methuselah, power, rest. So the climax of that great chain of names spanning from creation to the flood, the last climactic name, on the eve of the greatest storm the world had ever seen, the only storm to date in nature, the promise of rest, Noah. And when we see that ark, the symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which all the things of nature found rest and refuge from the storm, as we look at that ark being beaten pitilessly by the elements, symbolic of the beating of our ark, by the storm of the wrath of God that we might have rest when the flood eventually ebbs we read the ark rested on Mount Ararat the ark rested and in that ark at the height of the storm the elephant had been no more secure than the timid mouse and the courageous bold lion than the timid hare in the ark. And the strong rhinoceros, no more at ease than the rabbit. The ark was a rest for all. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Great heart or little faith. Elephant or mouse. And so there are the climaxes in Scripture. And when we look at the sacred times of Israel's calendar, it's just the same there. Not just the seventh day, but the seventh month brought rest. The seventh month brought the Day of Atonement, peace between God and his people. The seventh year brought the sabbatical year, peace for the land. 
A week of seven years brought the jubilee, ushered in on the Day of Atonement on the seventh month, the proclamation of trumpets, liberty and rest to all the slaves, the inheritance restored to everyone after seven sabbatical years in a 50-year period, the 50th year of jubilee rest. And then scripture has a whole book of rest after we've seen the time of the judges where every man did that which was right in his own eyes and there was no rest. When you can read the horrible tales of the, the cutting up of the concubine and her pieces being dispatched to the tribes of Israel because every man did what was right and there was no king in Israel. Right at that time of unrest, the story of Ruth, a heathen girl seeking rest, Naomi says, shall I not seek rest for thee? And she finds rest in the house of Boaz, that kinsman redeemer, that lord of the harvest, whose name means in him strength. That rest had been imaged when Ruth went gleaning and her hap was to light on the field that belonged to Boaz and Boaz invited her to lunch. And the record says that she sat down and ate and was sufficed and left. I always used to think that meant she departed when I read left, but it didn't. It meant she left a lot over. The feast was so abundant. The text really means she sat down and ate and was satisfied and she left plenty. There was more than she could consume. She had found abundance in the generosity of her kinsman redeemer to whom she became united and brought forth fruit, the ancestor of Jesus. Obed was the great-great-grandfather of David, the great-great-grandfather of Jesus. Rest, that's the theme of the book of Ruth. The Canaan land was meant to be a rest. After centuries of bondage, and oppression. Moses came, Aaron came, promising rest, rest from oppression, rest from slavery, rest in the promised land of Canaan. Please notice what it says in Hebrews 3 about Israel's reaction to the promises. You'll notice verse 8 of chapter 3 of Hebrews speaks about the day of rebellion, the day of testing in the wilderness, when Israel's fathers put God to the test Verse 10 says that God was angry with that generation. Verse 11, I swore in my wrath, I'll never enter my rest. And then verse 16 of chapter 3, Who were they that heard and yet were rebellious? Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? With whom was he provoked 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear they should never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But now notice the next chapter. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. Good news came to us, just as to them, but the message which they heard didn't benefit them. It wasn't met with faith in the heart of the hearers. But we who have believed enter into that rest. Why didn't Israel experience the soul rest that God had promised, that had been symbolized in the Sabbath from the creation of the world, pictured in Noah and the resting ark, 
in the rest of Ruth as she had union with her Redeemer, in the sacred times of the seventh month and the seventh year and the jubilee at the end of the seven weeks of years? Why didn't Israel enter into that rest that was symbolised by Canaan? Well, the scripture tells us because of unbelief. My friend, we only have one trouble. Some of us here have physical problems. Some of us have financial problems. Some of us have social problems. But there's really only one problem. And if that problem is solved, all the others will be solved. The only problem any of us have is unbelief. It's not really the calamities that come our way. It's the spirit of rebellion. It's not the pitiless storm of change and sorrow that pelts us, that breaks our spirit. It's our angry action. You know, a bird in a cage can wound itself, beating itself against the wires. It might as well sit back and just sing. It is unbelief that is the root of all our problems. It is our selfishness that leads to our discontent. Martin Luther said our self-love is the root of all our disquietude. He didn't mean physical pain. He meant our mental disturbances of unrest. He said it's our self-love. Were we content with the will of God, we would not beat against the wings of the cage. Genuine faith in the gospel, my friends, purges us, refines us, takes away the rebellion and thus we enter into rest. We're no longer an autonomous pilot peering anxiously from the bow of our ship into the murky darkness knowing we have to thread away through the rocks and the quicksands. When we are in faith, we've taken a pilot on board and he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing even in the bad days and the sad days, and the tragic days, and the mad days. I'm with you all the days, even unto the end. And all things work together for good. For God has a thousand ways of providing for us of which we know nothing. And those who accept the one principle of making the the service of God supreme will find difficulties vanish and a plain path before their feet. And even death, my friends, when we go over the edge and drop, we drop into the hand of God, into a rest that symbolises a greater rest beyond. We which have believed, our unbelief is our problem. It was a problem with Israel. You know... Moses and Aaron showed signs to Israel because Israel did not believe that God had sent them despite the promise of Genesis that God would visit his people and bring them out of the furnace. Despite that promise, the Israelites did not believe when Moses said, the time has come, the hour of deliverance is here. They did not believe until they had the signs of the leprosy and the water turned to blood. And when they saw the signs, they believed, but not for long. God gave them a cataract of signs, signs in the heaven, signs in the earth, plagues of death in the herd and death in the home, death in the hovel and death on the throne, plagues among the living and among the dead, in the darkness and in the dirt, plagues, signs, abundance of them. And Israel believed, but it wasn't genuine belief, as God led them out and suddenly they saw 
a great river between them and the promised land. Israel lapsed back into unbelief. Did you bring us out to bury us? Were there no graves in Egypt? Where is God? What's he up to? Moses, you ought to be stoned. God was longing for some Israelite mother to say to her children, we've never seen God make a tunnel through the mountains or plough a path through the sea, but our God can do it. But Israel couldn't see, so they disbelieved. And then when God did plough a path through the seas and the water drowned their Egyptians, the record says, then the Israelites believed when they saw the Israelites dead. Seeing is believing is a worldly philosophy. The Christian's philosophy is believing is seeing. Jesus said to Nathanael, Believest thou? You'll see greater things than these. To Thomas he says, Thomas, because you've seen, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. My friends, true faith accepts the word of God before it sees anything. That's what faith is all about. And how many times I've failed, failed in serving God because of my sheer unbelief. How many times I have been forced to accept the second best of God's providence because of rebellion, of unbelief. It's our only real problem. There's none other. See our own picture in Israel. God brings the next to Mara and the waters are bitter. Will they trust him now? Will they believe that God can create something that can change the bitter waters to sweet? That's our problem. And they murmur against God, but God shows Moses a branch, a tree, symbolic of the tree of the cross, which alone can sweeten the bitter waters of sorrow and sickness and tragedy and death and loss and guilt. My friends, to be in life means to be in trouble. There are a few people that seem at rest because they're like the sunny vineyards on the slopes of Mount Etna that can be deluged any time with volcanic lava. There are some people that have an artificial bubble of rest, but that's not the real thing. For most of us that live near the earth, life is filled with trouble and trauma. And unless we have an inner rest, you know, if you're in a big sailing ship, you feel the pitching and the tossing least at the centre. If you pin a white piece of paper to the rim of a great carriage wheel it goes round with great rapidity but if you pin it to the axle it hardly seems to move the nearer we are to the centre the less we feel the tumult and the commotion and that's what faith is it means living at the centre that's what it is Israel found it hard to do and Israel represents me and you so God changes the water and it becomes sweet and then they believe. And they go on further and there's no food and because they can't see, they don't believe and they murmur. And God sends manna and when they taste and feel and touch, they believe. Then they come to Rephidim and again there's no water and again they're complaining and grumbling. They always wanted to see before they could believe. You know, this is why the Lord told the Israelites that did make Canaan that they had to march around Jericho and give a song, a shout of 
faith before the walls fell. God wanted a people that would trust him without seeing because that's the only way we're going to negotiate the shoals of life. Those that wait to see and to touch and to taste before they can rejoice and be happy may never be happy. Or if they are, it'll be short-lived. We've got to rejoice in what we are in God, what God is to us. With the long-range view, eternity, not just time. And all is well for those that make Christ their all in all when he's all to us. It's because we've given our all to him, seeing that before we ever did that, 20 centuries ago, as Smut said last night, he gave his all for us. There's only faith and the assurance that God is for us. In the sign of the cross, we see that. And God will give no other sign, my friends. If we don't accept the sign of the cross, nothing else will move us to faith. Nothing. Nothing. God has spoken his last word at the cross. The silent God for 20 centuries. There have been no Mount Sinai's. Nothing could transcend the cross. If that doesn't bring us to faith, nothing, nothing will. God brought Israel to Sinai. There were signs of plenty. There was Jehovah with millions of his angels. There was the sound of a trumpet exceeding loud. There was earthquake. There was smoke. And the mountain trembles. Signs are plenty. But then God tested them by six weeks without signs. No Jehovah. No Moses. He'd gone up into the mountain. As for this man Moses, we what not what's become of him. The trumpet is stilled. The mountain is not shaking anymore. No signs. Where are our signs? Up, make us gods that we can see. And then came the greatest sign of all. God forgave them. God forgave them. They entered not in because of unbelief. The sign of the regenerate is the sign of faith. Those that will trust God where they cannot trace him. That generation bleached in the wilderness. They didn't enter in because of unbelief. This belief is not talking about a mental yes. You'll notice that in chapter 3 it sometimes translates the word obedience. Where some versions have unbelief, other versions put it disobedience. It's talking about the trust that obeys. That's real faith. That's real faith. They didn't enter in because of unbelief. Was it any better in New Testament times? Had Israel improved by the time of the New Testament? No. They come to Jesus. What sign do you show? Still looking for signs. Still lusting to see and feel and hear. What work shall we work that we might work the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe. That you believe. Was it any better with his disciples? In that same chapter, John chapter 6, the thousands come hunting for Jesus and he teaches them and heals them for days and now they're hungry and pale and wan and weary. And Jesus turns to Philip and he says, well, how are we going to provide lunch for this group? And Philip looks at the problem and he says, why? He says, if we had a fortune, we couldn't pay for lunch for all these people. He looked at the problem. He didn't look at Jesus. And then there was Thomas and he looked at the resources. He said, well, the best we could do, there's a little boy here with his lunch. But what would that do? 
He looked at the resources. Looking, 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 not trusting. The little boy gave what he had to Jesus and looked up into his face. And the thousands were fed. That was faith. And then when they want to make him a king so they can see the Romans dead and they can see Jerusalem, the capital of the world, Jesus has to send his disciples away because they're in that too. They want to see him made a king. So he puts them in, the, in a boat and because of the storm in their hearts, he sends them another storm. You know, it's an interesting thing, but uh, troubles are like cannibals. The, the big ones eat up the little ones. And when you and I... Tr- complain about trifles God sends us something that's no trifle and so here were the disciples grumbling a storm in their hearts because Jesus wouldn't let himself be made king so he sends them another storm and if you'd look there please in John 6 you'll see an illustration about travelling at the speed of faith it says in verse 18 the sea rose because a strong wind was blowing and then verse 19 they see Jesus walking on the sea and they're frightened We're usually frightened when God comes near to us. He means us well, but we're so suspicious of God. You know, suspicious of him that died for us. We're so suspicious of God. We always think he means ill. And when Jesus came near to deliver them, they thought he'd come to torment them. They thought he was was someone from the devil. They didn't observe that the very billows that were threatening to come down on their heads were under his feet. What a revelation of the reality of life that is to the Christian when suddenly we see that those very tempests that threaten to inundate us, the things that look as though they'll destroy us, they're under the feet of Jesus, my friends. He walks on them. They're a pavement to him. They won't drown us while Jesus is walking the sea of our life. Let the devil do his worst. He can do nothing that God does not permit. Death itself is under the control of the Saviour. No Christian life is ever cut short, unfulfilled, whatever it looks like. God alone can measure the influence of a Christian in dying as well as in living. God knows. Then it says they took him on board. Verse 21, they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Immediately, when they took him on board, at the speed of faith, they reached their destination. They toiled in rowing, getting nowhere. We mistake activity for achievement too often. We seem to be on a giddy flywheel going round and round and round, but not advancing. But when they took Jesus on board, immediately they were there. That's what faith is, taking Jesus on board, reckoning on Jesus. Unbelief is living by ourselves. Unbelief is looking at our mere human resources, and they're fragile. The strongest men can be destroyed by a few bacteria. The most well-balanced, sane person can lose their sanity given enough pressure. We're very weak. Unbelief is to count on our own resources. Faith is counting on his resources. Taking God into account. When Jesus said, I'll give you another comforter, I will come unto you. And to use that beautiful word parakletos, the word parakletos means one alongside to help. The meaning of the gift of the Spirit is that God is always alongside to help. 
that God's is verily on earth with us now as Jesus was in the days of his flesh. The meaning of the gift of the Spirit is that we're not left alone to cope with life on our own. We're never alone if by faith we reckon on his faithfulness. God alongside to help in every situation. It is blasphemy to live on our own. It is blasphemy to look at our own slender resources. Our resources are all of heaven. Christ is our resource. And the Bible tries to encourage us so much about that. In Psalms we read, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. You know, when the Queen of Sheba saw how the servants of Solomon were fed, her spirit failed. Such hospitality, such grandeur. My friend Solomon's provisions, nothing compared with a vision and provision that comes from God. We become abundantly satisfied. The resources are plenty. We can be at rest in our spirit. With God is enough. God doesn't give us the scraps as though we're dogs. The dogs eat of the scraps that fall from the master's table. But Mephibosheth sat at the king's table. That lame prince, lame on both his feet, lamed by a fall, that's us. You and I were made lame by a fall on both our feet. The way of man that walketh is not in himself. They've all together gone astray. They've all turned out of the way. We're all lame, cripples. But God takes us cripples and we sit at the royal table. That's what it says about Mephibosheth. He sat at David's table. We're not like dogs eating the scraps. Faith, counting on the resources of God being abundantly satisfied with the fatness of God's provision, its completeness. Remember Lazarus? Scripture says that Lazarus sat at the table with Jesus. Lazarus had been dead. The Jews had said, behold how he loved him. Jesus had wept over the corpse of Lazarus. And now he's sitting at the table of Jesus. My friend, that's you and me. We were born dead. We were still born spiritually. We were born dead in trespasses and sin, children of wrath, aliens from God and the covenants of promise, strangers from the things of heaven. That's how we were born. But God revived us from the dead as surely as Jesus raised Lazarus. We were crucified with him and now we are risen with him and we've ascended with him. We are seated in the heavenly places with him. We by faith can dine in the halls of the Almighty in the heavenly throne room by faith, seeing ourselves in Jesus. Jesus is not just someone who accepts us at a casual wayside station to give us a few droppings of charity. No, Jesus is not like that. He opens the royal gates of his great heart and he takes us in and he makes us members of his body. He makes us one with him. We're no longer on our own. We're members of Jesus. One with him. What wonderful provision. So when you see Lazarus seated, as John 12, 2 says, seated at the table with Jesus, that represents us seated in heavenly places with Christ because he's wept over us when we were dead in trespasses and sin and he's raised us from the dead. Behold how he loved us. Behold how he loved us. When we see how our sins trouble Jesus, they will cease to trouble us. 
when we see what our sins cost Jesus, we will have rest from the remorse that sin brings. When we behold him in the garden, clutching at the damp, dark earth, feeling upon himself the guilt of every son and daughter of Adam, of old and young, of black and white, of the antediluvians, of the sodomites, of New York and Atlanta and Sydney and Tokyo and London. Behold him there in the garden with his whole body weeping, weeping blood. You know, there are many ways to die without shedding blood. But Christ's death was a bloody death. Seven wounds, hands and feet and brow and back and side, that we might see in him the antitype of the sacrifices, for without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin. When he had by himself cleansed our sins, you know, blood cleanses, actually cleanses. If you talk to the deer hunters that have gone deer hunting, they've gotten grease on their hands. It's so hard to remove. By the time they've picked up the bleeding deer, the grease is gone. Blood cleanses. And our Lord died a bloody death that we might see in him the antitype of the sacrifices of old that typified his sacrifice, the blood that is the life. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And when we talk about the blood of Christ, we mean the life of God in his Son given for us. So when we see how our sins have troubled Jesus, they'll cease to trouble us. When we understand the meaning of that cross, you know, I didn't mention one place in Genesis where you have the word rest. It's in Genesis 18.4. You read how certain travellers came and rested under the tree. That's the second time you have tree in Genesis. The first tree was where the human race fell into unrest. But the second time you have the tree mentioned, it's a place of rest. Read it there sometime in Genesis 18. The travellers come and rest themselves under the tree. When we understand the meaning of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that God erected on Calvary, that was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a tree of the knowledge of the goodness of God, that he loved sinners, a tree of the knowledge of the evil of men who crucified their heavenly lover. When we see the meaning of that tree, we find rest. We behold in Jesus one troubled for our sin's sake. And at that point our sins cease to trouble us. Remember the pilgrim and pilgrim's progress? He came to a place somewhat ascending. And he saw one bleeding on a tree. And as he watched, the fountains in his eyes began to give forth water. And the cords that held the burden on his back were severed. And the bundle fell and it rolled down the hill Calvary into a sepulchre and the pilgrim cries blessed cross blessed sepulchre blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me I hear the words of love I gaze upon the blood I see the mighty sacrifice and I have peace with God that's it
I hear the words of love. I gaze upon the blood. I see the mighty sacrifice and I have peace, rest with God. It is an everlasting rest. As sure as Jehovah's name, it's a rest as stable as his steadfast throne, evermore the same. Clouds may go and clouds may come, storms may sweep my sky, but the blood seal friendship changes not, for the cross is ever nigh. When we understand the cross, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we find rest. We find sufficiency. Like Ruth, we eat and have enough and we leave abundance for the millions of the world. There's enough there to eat for everybody. Like Lazarus, we are resurrected from the dead and we feast there. We have Benjamin's mess. Remember Benjamin's mess? How Joseph gave him a pile of food that was ten times more than was normal. That's what God gives to you and me, Benjamin's mess. They're abundantly satisfied with the fatness of his house. Jesus said in John 10 verse 9 that he was a true door and those that came to him would go in and out and find pasture, find satisfaction, find food, find sufficiency in Jesus. Because in the love of God, the heart can rest. Nothing else can give it rest. Only when you believe that God loves you. Unfailingly, despite your sins, despite your failures, we are tempted to think, yes, he loved me. He loved me and died for my sins of the past, but that's different. He can't love me when I still fall. My friends, that's not true. You remember John 13? It begins like this. When the hour has come, Jesus, having loved his own that were in the world, loved them unto the end. And rising from supper, he girded himself with a towel and he took a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples. My friends, that was a figure of what Jesus did and what he's doing. He rose from the heavenly supper and girded himself with the towel of humanity to wash our feet with his blood. And that's what he's still doing. He said to those grumbling, ambitious, selfish disciples, ye are clean. Because they accepted his washing of their feet, ye are clean. Jesus is still our servant, though our King and Lord. He is still washing our feet. He bears with our infirmities, our sins. I guess one of my most frequent prayers is the very short one, Lord, forgive my stupidity when I find myself doing again for the 20th or the 30th time something that is not the best. You see, we don't act in life, we react. And we have been shaped by our early lives, one-third born, one-third made, one-third we make ourselves. And we react so much in life rather than acting. And I can come home and look in the mirror and say, did you say that stupid thing? Did you say that vicious thing? Did you say that unkind thing? Lord, forgive my stupidity. Forgive my unchristlikeness. Did you do that? Yes, I did it. 
My friend, we are all fools, Christian fools. But the Lord is still a servant. He's still washing us. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. We've been washed in the great fountain, open for sin and uncleanness, but continually in our pilgrimage, our feet become dusty with the soil of sin. And we have to keep coming back for Jesus to wash our feet. And if you doubt his willingness, look again at the cross and hear him cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer is, in order thee might not forsake us. God forsook Jesus that he need not forsake us. I say again, our sins will not bring us unrest when we see the unrest they brought to Jesus. Our sins will not trouble us when we see how they troubled him. See him there at the end of the world. See him there with the darkness which represented the hiding of the face of God. God couldn't look at the prisoner of the bar. He couldn't live at that guilty one, sin incarnate. It was a serpent lifted up, not a lamb. Jesus is being treated as the serpent because he bears my sin. My friends, if he's borne my sin, I needn't bear it. If God has punished Christ, if Christ has taken my guilt, I needn't hold it. He died for sins past, for sins present and sins to come. The good news of the gospel is not just about my past, it's about today. There isn't a day, my friends, when you and I do not fall short of the ideal. There isn't a day when we're not guilty of something that merits death. The law of God demands perfection in thought and word and deed and feeling and motive. You and I have never done anything from unmixed motives, not once. But the good news of the gospel is that the cross, my friends, not only deals with the past but with the present, it still sweetens the bitter waters of failure. He's still washing our feet. He is still our servant girded with a towel. He entered heaven for us. He intercedes for us. He is washing our feet still. And if that doesn't break our hearts, if that doesn't make us tired of sin, if that doesn't lead us to faith, what can God do? What more can he do? As Noel has been saying, what more could he do? Please notice back in Hebrews 4, it doesn't say he that feeleth enters into rest. It doesn't say he that is eminently useful enters into rest. It doesn't say he that is perfect enters into rest. Could you imagine more bad news than any of those? Our feelings are like the weather. They are so changeable. Thomas a. Kemper said, my brother, my sister, regard not thy feeling. Whatsoever it be now, it will shortly be changed into another thing. And that's true. God doesn't look at our feelings. He looks at our willings. He looks at our choosings. Even the love that God demands of us isn't a feeling. It's a choice. It doesn't say he that feeleth enters into rest. It doesn't say he that's perfect enters into rest doesn't say he that never makes a mistake. He that believeth. He that believeth. And you see at the cross a man that was unhelped by law, a penitent thief, he'd had plenty of law, hadn't helped him, but by believing he found rest. He found paradise by believing. 
Law and terrors do but harden All the while they work alone But a sense of blood-bought pardon That will melt a heart of stone In these chapters 3 and 4 The refrain again and again is Enter, enter, enter He that believers enters into rest They didn't enter into rest When you come further on in the book You read about Jesus who entered into the most holy place the forerunner for us who entered within the veil. And in chapter 10, 19 it says, Therefore come with holy boldness and enter in by that new and living way through the veil, through his torn flesh. When that flesh was torn, the veil was rent at the temple, that we might know the way was clear to enter in. The rest, my friends, of faith is the rest that comes when we see that our Lord has finished his work and entered into the very presence of God for us. That when he entered in, we entered in. That is rest. Listen, the gospel is the power of God to everyone that believeth. Little faith or great heart. Little faith will bring you to Jesus, but great faith will bring Jesus to you. Little faith can get you to heaven, but it will be third class. Great faith will take you there first class. Little faith says, when I'm afraid, I'll trust in thee. Great faith says, I will trust in thee and not be afraid. Great faith says, the Lord is my shepherd. I will fear no evil. That faith brings rest. Will you not pray, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief, and he will.